Galatians 5, 1 to 6. Turn there with me, please. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now, we've taken a couple of weeks off from our study of the book of Galatians. And the last time we studied it, we saw that Galatians can be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. It's a rough division. Chapters 1 and 2 are history. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrine. And then chapters 5 and 6 are ethics. So here at the beginning of chapter 5, we're dealing with ethics, with imperatives, with commands, or you could say with laws. In the final third of the letter to the church in Galatia, the Galatians are exhorted concerning right and wrong conduct. And much of the content of these last two chapters flows from the exhortation the Apostle Paul gives here at the beginning of our text this morning, where he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, using the word freedom in America is, is a portentous thing. It has a lot of weight in it. It has a lot of significance to us as Americans. And uh, it's in a lot of songs, a lot of quotes that use the word freedom. Probably from my generation, the, uh, <laughs> the song that most symbolizes our infatuation with freedom is Janis Joplin, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Um, I don't know what it is for the, you, the next generation, or the next next generation. You could probably tell me some song. Does one occur to you, Jimmy? Nothing. All right. Maybe you don't care about your freedom, right? <laughs> wait, wait, I heard one. Oh, yeah, yeah. But isn't that the who? That's like my generation, yeah. <laughs> I'm free. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are different kinds of freedom, and obviously Janis Joplin was, was not talking about the freedom spiritually that the Apostle Paul is speaking about, but let's spend just a second thinking about the kinds of freedom that the culture thinks about. Uh, political freedom, for instance, and economic freedom. Um, or think of uh, Martin Luther King's statement, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Freedom to our culture is precious, and it's a very sad thing that our culture considers freedom so precious but knows nothing of it. I mean, absolutely nothing of freedom. Um, why? Because to the culture, freedom is license. Our culture is not able to make the distinction between true freedom and bondage to our own appetites and desires. So to the degree that in our culture we're able to give in completely to the passions, 
This is the reason, by the way, that passion is such an in-word today. Because our culture is completely romantic and completely into giving in to whatever inclination hits it. And so even in worship, the biggest word in use today is they worship passionately. Think of the, uh, uh, what is it, the band or the assembly that uh, Rob took a bunch of you to a few years ago. I think it was called Passion. I'm not saying passion is bad, and certainly passion for Christ is something that's, that's woefully lacking in many of our hearts. Nevertheless, the world, when it uses this word, means something very different uh, than we mean when we say freedom. Now, in the political realm, are we willing to defend freedom? This is one of the issues that you see in political philosophy today, where people are talking about the fact that we've inherited freedom, but we're entirely willing to see it taken away from us. And you know that in political science classes today, there are lots of debates over the degree to which, for instance, the uh, um, Homeland Security Acts, you know, all the laws that came after 9-11 did or did not encroach upon the freedoms that we have received as Americans. And so when we think about freedom, we think, you know, we live in a culture that thinks it's free. We live in a nation that loves its freedom. Um, Everywhere around the world, People look at us and say, now, Americans, United States citizens, are free. Um, We think of the fact that the men in the military are fighting for our freedom. The people in the past have given us freedom. But when we turn to the book of Galatians, we see that it's not political freedom. It's not uh, freedom to engage in whatever our desires are. It's not... Uh, freedom economically, being able to buy anything you want, to be independent, uh, financially uh, independent. This is not what the Apostle Paul is speaking of. And, and by the way, I would say what Martin Luther was saying when he said, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And absolutely not what the Apostle Paul was speaking about. Uh, you can be a slave and be completely free. And this is what the meaning of all the Negro spirituals are. All right. What is this freedom that the Apostle Paul is speaking about? Well, the freedom that Paul fought for on behalf of the Galatians was a freedom of conscience, a freedom from the accusation of both the Judaizers and the devil that the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ is simply not enough. All right. This is the freedom that the Apostle Paul refers to when he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. How did Christ set us free? When did he say it's finished? He said it on the cross as he poured out his lifeblood for us. That is the moment when we were emancipated. All those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Luther says this, Christ has made the Christian free from God's everlasting wrath. Our conscience is now free and quiet, not fearing the wrath to come. For who is able to express what a thing it is when a man is assured in his heart that God is neither nor will be angry with him, but will always be merciful and a loving father to him for Christ's sake. And then Luther says this is indeed a marvelous and incomprehensible liberty. 
So here's the context for the commandments that the Galatians are about to be given. They are to fight for the freedom that Christ has given them. They're to fight against the yoke of slavery that the devil and the false shepherds are trying to bind them with. Now, Wendell Phillips, uh, some people say it's Jefferson, but nobody can document it. Wendell Phillips said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And what's true concerning political freedom is also true concerning spiritual freedom. For instance, think of 1 Peter 5, what it says about vigilance. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but... Resist him firm in your faith. Isn't that interesting? Firm in your faith. I always want to make faith out to be sort of a, a, a soft and, and uh, uh, malleable and like jello. You know, faith is something that you simply receive and that you don't have to do anything with, that you don't have to protect. But here we see resist him being firm in your faith. Firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So, because Satan is roaming around, like prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, we are to resist him firm in our faith. And this is what Paul is saying when Paul says that we are to defend and to protect and to stand in our freedom. Concerning the Galatians, the center of this effort to bind them again in the yoke of slavery to the law and to their own works of righteousness is what? What's the center of it? The center of it is what? The center of it is circumcision. All right. This is the issue that's brought up again and again in the letter. Circumcision stands in place in the, in, in, in the book of Galatians as sort of the central argument that all of the battles over freedom and slavery are happening in this church. All right. And it's very difficult to get you as a congregation to, to put yourself outside of that specific and to think more generally what would be the center of the battle here in our church. What would be the center of the battle in your own conscience? What would be the center of the battle in the American church today? Scripture is not translated when you bring it out of Greek and Hebrew into English alone. But Scripture is also translated when we take what is said to the church in Galatia and apply it to ourselves. It's not simply enough to make a big show of showing exactly what's going on in the church of Galatia if we are not today seeing, all right, well, what is the central argument today here among us as to what would be bondage and what would be freedom for us? You know, how do we try to, to, to make other men's consciences uh, enslaved? What, what do you and I do about that? And it's in the application that uh, typically you get upset with your preachers. Because it's all well and fine to talk about what's going on in Galatia. But what if we ourselves are subject to allowing our consciences to become enslaved? And what if I get specific with you and say, well, are you sure your conscience isn't becoming enslaved here? Well, then it's meddling. You know that old joke about the preacher begins meddling when he talks to us personally, right? I'm going to try to meddle with you again this morning. I try to meddle every Sunday because I think meddling is central to the responsibility of a pastor. And uh, I, I just looked at Andy because I hadn't seen him yet. And I thought of him because he's in training to be a pastor and is now seeking a church. Um, and I hope you will meddle every Sunday. Now, resist him firm in your faith Resist him. 
we have to remember, in order to resist the bondage that, is, that we are in danger of submitting to, we have to remember what a cruel taskmaster the law is. In other words, you have to have motivations to, to resist slavery. Now, what kind of bondage is the law? Martin Luther has a wonderful uh, analogy that I want to read to you because it, it so perfectly sums up uh, our condition outside of Christ, our condition when we do not live by faith. It perfectly sums up our condition when we depend upon circumcision, and we all go, well, none of us depend on circumcision. And I say, okay, what do you depend on? Your smiling face that everybody looks at you and thinks you're a nice Christian person, right? Your musical gifts, right? What do you depend on? Anytime we're depending on things outside of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, here is our condition. Listen to this analogy of Luther. He says, Paul here compares those who seek righteousness by the law to oxen that are tied to a yoke. The yoke being the principle that makes the analogy work, all right? For as oxen drawing in the yoke with great toil receive nothing but forage and pasture. In other words, as they do their work, the only thing they get to do is eat. All right. And when they be able to draw the yoke no more, in other words, when they're done working and they can't do it anymore, they've got a bad leg, they have a bad heart, they're ready to die, then they're appointed to the slaughter. All right. Even so, those that seek righteousness by the law are captives and oppressed with the yoke of bondage, that is to say, with the law. And when they have tired themselves a long time in the works of the law with great and hard work in the end, this is their reward that they're miserable and perpetual servants and servants of what? Servants of sin, death, God's wrath, the devil, and hell. Wherefore, there is no greater or harder bondage than the bondage of the law. So think of this. Think of oxen. Oxen over in Africa, they're in a yoke. They spend their days working and sweating. And the only benefit they have is that they're able to eat while they work. And then the day comes when they're no longer able to pull the yoke, no longer able to be in the yoke. And so they give up, and with their last breath, they're given over to the slaughterhouse. And Luther says that that is the analogy that is implicit behind Paul's statements. And he says this is our condition when we depend upon the law. If you believe that going to Mass... Every single day, observing the fish and meatless Fridays. If you believe as a Muslim that uh, celebrating uh, Ramadan, if you believe as a Jew that Yom Kippur or any of the other holy days, if you believe that circumcision, if you believe that baptism and communion, all right, if you place any of these things as works that are to add to the work of Christ. You say, well, I, I value Christ. I, I, I'm committed to Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. But, and there the but is, it can't simply be Jesus. It can't simply be the work of Christ. It can't simply be the cross. After all, Christ died so that we would give ourselves to good works. And I have to be a responsible Christian. I have to at least look like I'm a responsible Christian to other Christians. And, and these men coming up from Jerusalem say that if I'm circumcised, then I'll look like a responsible Christian to other Christians. 
I mean, come on. Think about the Galatians. Think about how easy it was to suck them in. Think about how easy it is always to suck all of us in. The Galatians were not told that Jesus didn't matter. Nobody's going to fall for that. What they were told is that Jesus and something matters. All right? Jesus and baptism. If you really love Jesus Christ, then you will be baptized because he's commanded it. And if you're not baptized, what? Well, ask yourself that. Is baptism just transparently replace circumcision? We know there's a tie. We know that baptism is the mark for Christians today, as circumcision was the mark in the Old Testament. And so if Paul is saying, if you're circumcised, it's hopeless. You're in bondage and you're cut off from Christ. Well, it's because now it's baptism. The Apostle Paul is making the argument that circumcision is done and that the new covenant has baptism. But the problem is that the Apostle Paul does not say that. And do you understand that? This would be the perfect time to say it. <laughs> you know? Look, the reason I'm being so hard on circumcision is that there is a new sacrament that's replaced it. Don't you get it? These Jews are not willing to move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Come with me. I'll move you over into the New Covenant. And if you give yourself again to circumcision, well, you're back in the Old Covenant. You're cut off from Christ. You're under the law. And so... Forget circumcision. Be baptized. All right? And listen, throughout the, the history of the Christian church, that has been one of the main dangers that has seduced people back into bondage, is baptism. Now, some of you are very uncomfortable at this point, and you're thinking, well, the pastor is speaking against baptism. But you know, when you go back and read the commentaries on what Paul is saying here, time after time after time, they all say, it looks like Paul is speaking in a denigrating way, in a disrespectful way about circumcision. Look, circumcision was commanded by God No one is saying that circumcision was something that from the beginning brought people into bondage. Nobody's even saying that Timothy, who Paul had circumcised, as he was making these arguments, that Timothy was in bondage. What is being said is that when you take circumcision or the Lord's Supper or baptism and you place them as things that merit the attention and favor of God that you are giving yourself to your own pride, your own self-will, your own works, and you're back in bondage and Christ is worth nothing to you. And okay, so is there anybody here that sees baptism as being the thing that's replaced circumcision, the thing that we must do or we are not saved? Or another way of saying it is, is anybody seeing baptism as something that when we do do it, that we are saved? And immediately you, try, you, you, you call out scripture texts that talk about baptism and salvation in a parallel context. I say, look, interpret scripture by scripture. If you've got one text that places 
baptism and salvation in a parallel context. And you've got the whole book of Galatians. Which do you think takes priority? Do you know how many people have gone to hell thinking they're saved because they've been baptized? Not to put too fine a point on it. You get my point. Baptism does not save anyone. And you say, but that's contradicting Scripture. I say, no, it's in entire harmony with the book of Galatians. You say, well, the book of Galatians doesn't talk about baptism. I say, that's my point. Now, I don't know how many of you here are tempted to think that your baptism saves you. But what about the Lord's Supper? How many of you think that as we come to this table that we somehow add to the work of Christ, that, that, that it's a meritorious work? How many of us have a Roman Catholic sacramental sort of mass idea about the Lord's Supper? That how frequently we take it is connected to our standing before God. Do you understand that? You know, some of this movement towards weekly communion in the Reformed community, I think, gets at this. I think somehow some Reformed men think that the more frequently we take communion, the better our standing is before God. Now, they'd all immediately deny it and say that we're justified by faith alone. And yet, isn't there a sort of uh, uh, the beginning of a legalistic mindset about weekly communion? You really think that what Jesus Christ was concerned about is that we would take communion every single week. And of course, if the question is whether it's weekly, do you really think that the Lord's concern is that we take it daily? Because that's what the Roman Catholics really in their doctrine still want you to do. And why daily? Why not moment by moment? Ding dong. <laughs> I mean, you get what I'm saying. What is the Lord's Supper? What is taking part in His body and His blood? See, the beautiful thing about faith is it knows, it, it, it knows no boundaries for where it can live out through love. And so, alright, baptism and the Lord's Supper obviously can, can be looked to just as circumcision was looked to. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? Okay, I am not being disrespectful of baptism in the Lord's Supper. I am not being disrespectful of circumcision. I am saying that we must not trust in physical things because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you understand that? And the minute we cling on to physical things, we have displaced the Son of God. And you say, but Jesus commanded that we were to baptize. Yes, Jesus commanded it. But that baptism is not our security. It is not our hope. It's not the thing that impresses God and says, all right, uh, by virtue of them being baptized, they're transferred from death to life. It just ain't true. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now, he's not saying that Timothy just had circumcised is beyond hope because he was circumcised. So you have to read this with understanding. When he says receive circumcision, what he's referring to is those who place hope and faith in circumcision. 
And he says they are Christless. So Paul places his entire reputation and life at the center of the matter. He says, I, Paul, say to you, he doesn't hesitate to make it clear that everything important now and eternally is at stake. He says, verse 3, I testify again, so in case we hadn't gotten it before, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. He had said earlier in chapter 3, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In James 2, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so, any man that looks to the law for his right standing before God and fails to keep that law in the tiniest point is a man that is without hope in the world. Because that man has placed his confidence in himself. He believes that he can stand before God righteous. All right? And because of that, if he fails at any one point in his life, he is beyond hope. There is no hope for him. Verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And so what we see here is that God wants no partnerships that God wants no shared credits. Calvin says, the smallest part of justification cannot be attributed to the law without renouncing Christ and His grace. Any seeking of our own works, any effort to be partners with God, taking just a tidbit of the credit of our right standing before God for ourselves, is not helpful. It cuts us off from Christ and it cuts us off from grace. We're back under bondage and without hope in this world or the next. Verse 5, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. What does it mean to wait? What is the nature of the word hope? The nature of the word hope and wait is that you don't have it. Does that make sense to you? You can't hope for something you have, says Scripture. Who hopes for what he already has? And so what are we doing? We are waiting for our hope of righteousness. What does this mean? Well, what it means is that we despair of ourselves and that we look somewhere else for our righteousness. This means that if you look inside yourself, and as we come to the Lord's table, this is a wonderful time to talk about this. If we look inside ourselves and say, well, I'm not good enough to come to that table, that is precisely the condition that we ought to come to the table in. This is our hope of righteousness. But, it is a constant temptation for man to not be content to have a hope of righteousness in Jesus Christ, but to want to have here on earth something that, that, that physically, that, 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 that you can touch, that you can feel, that you can taste, that will be our present security. In other words, we don't want to look forward by faith, but we want to see and to touch and to taste. 
Now I know, I w- and I have, I, have, uh, I have mentioned this again and again during our time of studying Galatians, I know that it's very uncomfortable for all of us to, um, to think in terms of there being anybody today who is making the Galatian error. I know that. I know that you would like us to trot out this historical illustration and have this hoopla about how back then they were so stupid, but for 2,000 years the church has had the book of Galatians and so we don't need to worry about it anymore. I know it makes you very uncomfortable when I apply this. I said that at the beginning of the sermon. I know it's uncomfortable to you. But I want you to ask yourself right now, what is it that would call you away from having a hope in the future of righteousness? For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Calvin says this on this verse. He says, Paul's meaning, therefore, is that all that is now necessary for obtaining righteousness is a simple faith which declines the aid of splendid ceremonies and is satisfied with the spiritual worship of God. So, okay, we can trot out Galatians and talk about the historical battle that Paul had. And then we can trot out what? The Reformation. And talk about the historical battle that Calvin and Luther had. Right? And what we keep doing is we just keep trotting out these historical examples, but we're never in danger. And our loved ones are never in danger. Now, let me ask you a question. If you go to a liberal church, a mainline denominational church, all right, and you always know it's dangerous when I walked down. <laughs> Okay, if you go to a mainline church, does a mainline church tell you that you, your trust is only in the blood of Jesus Christ? No, that's not what they teach. What they teach is that your hope is in seeing in Christ the kind of person that you are created to be and could be. And that if you look at Christ carefully, you will be led to become like him. Now, let me ask you, is that the gospel? No, that is not the substitutionary atonement. That is the moral influence theory of the atonement. And it is a direct denial of the teaching of Scripture. Do you understand that? Jesus didn't come to show us what a great man could be. Now, you think I'm impious when I'm saying that. I'm not. Jesus did not come to show us what a great man could be. Jesus came to bear upon himself our sins on the cross. All right? And so if you go to a church that teaches you all you can be, that teaches you that education is the the salvation of the world, and as we show people what they can be through the great prophets, you know, through Jesus maybe specifically, all right, it is a direct denial. And so if you have loved ones who are in a church that are teaching them to be like Jesus and that that's the gospel, it is the Galatian era because it's casting off Christ and it's putting on them the law. Do you understand that? Now, it might be a very enlightened and liberal and progressive law, but it's a hopeless law because there is no person who isn't racist. 
I mean, come on, be honest. Every single one of you is racist. And so if salvation consists of liberation, liberation from prejudice, liberation from racism, from sexism, if that's really what salvation is, then if you fail the law at one single point, you are without God and without hope in this world and the next. There is no hope for you. So see, this is an application that bears on you and your loved ones who are in churches where the extent of salvation is liberation and the wiping out of all isms. This is a direct application of the book of Galatians. Now, we might be able to go along with that fairly well because we might have just evangelical friends. You know, we might not even know any mainliners. <laughs> you know? Well, what about people who deny God entirely and just believe in, 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 in the ascent of man? You know, Jacob Bronowski and all that. You know, they believe in evolution. All right? What does Galatians have to say about them? They're without God and without hope in this world and the next because their hope is not Christ. What do you believe about your friends who are well-intentioned, seem to have a fairly enlightened view of life and what it means to be a neighbor, but have no clinging to Christ? All right, again, those are fairly easy because every, oh, Christians are, are fine with beating up on, on liberals, right? And people that believe in evolution, right? So let's move over to this side. Roman Catholics are without God and without hope in this world. Oh. Mm. That one does not go down easily. Why? Because Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse are leading us to just make common cause with Roman Catholics because they love Christ, we love Christ, we can love Christ together. But what is Catholicism? Has it changed in its essential nature since the Reformation? If the book of Galatians is to teach us to let go of ceremonies to let go of all of these things which we cling to, which seem to have great physical mass. <laughs> Did you understand this? And to cling to our hope of righteousness. Do you understand this? What is the Vatican in Rome? Sure, we appreciate the Roman Catholics for making common cause in opposing abortion. We appreciate them for many things. But is the gospel in Rome? Brothers and sisters, Rome is filled with pomp and circumstance. It is filled with mitres, with capes, with grand gold cathedrals. It is filled with everything that the world says is religion. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, and it is exactly what Luther and Calvin are contending against. Because it ends up having people crawl on their knees up the steps of the Cathedral of Guadalupe or whatever it is in Mexico City that I saw it, it ends up with people uh, being taught, as I read in my Roman Catholic publication, The Wanderer, this last week, that if someone um, has their last rites at precisely the moment when they have cleaned their conscience of all of their mortal and venial sins, then it is possible for that person to jump across purgatory directly into heaven. All right? Now, come on. 
How could you have that in a common magazine going out to all Roman Catholics without them thinking that their salvation, that their good standing with God is tied to when they die and what they have done moments before they die? And we're talking moments. This is what they teach. Okay? Even the distinction between mortal and venial sins. Is that here in the text? I'm not saying that all sins are exactly the same and exactly evil. That's not what I said. What I asked you is, is the distinction between mortal and venial sins here in the text. No, because the text says that if you fail in the tiniest one portion of the law, that you are without hope. And it doesn't matter if it's venial or if it's mortal. All right. What we want to do again in our hearts is we want to say that this battle is a battle that's in the time of Paul in Galatia. It may have been in, in a number of cities in the time of the early church and that it was certainly in Europe during the time of the Reformation, but that today it's not in evangelical churches. It's not something that our hearts are in jeopardy over, you know. I'm not in danger of having my conscience become bound again. You know. And certainly my family members are all saved. And if you call that into question, then I'm not sure I want you preaching to me anymore. If there's a chasm, a shepherd points it out. And if a sheep goes running to it, he, he uses his rod or his staff or whatever. And he pulls them away from it. And if you love your family members, you're going to be honest with them. That if they believe that lighting candles and paying for masses and going to church every day and observing the holy days and being circumcised or baptized or taking communion, if they believe that they can add to the work of Christ through those things. And you say, well, they never say that they believe that they can add to the work of Christ. I say, yeah, look at them and you will know what they believe. Look at them and you will know what they believe. If that is the condition, then what Paul diagnoses is true of your loved ones. It is that they are without Christ in this world. If they are trusting their baptism to save them, the fact that they hold membership in a church, they are without God and without hope in the world. Now, I will make a qualification, and that is that I do believe that there are many Roman Catholics who are believers. And you know why? They're believers because they do not believe the doctrine of their church. Because the Roman Catholic Church holds to ex opere operato. And if you don't know what that means, go on the web and read it. And that is to add to the work of Christ and to trust in something beyond it. And so, do you love the doctrine of Paul? And do you think it has application to you and your loved ones? Do you love it? As you love this doctrine, you love Christ. As you love the blood of Christ and the work of Christ, you despise any work anything we would trust in ourselves. You despise any system of doctrine that would cut us off from Christ. Anything that would displace Christ in our hearts. 
This is biblical faith. And it does have application. Okay, now pray over it. Ask God what the application of this is to your life. Starting with yourself, moving out to your relatives and your family members. Do you love the people who think that they can impress God and, and, and appease him for their sin through the things they do on this earth? If so, warn them, as Paul faithfully warned us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul who resisted Peter to his face in front of the church. We thank you, Father, for Martin Luther and John Calvin, who resisted Rome and the Pope in front of the church. Father, give us men like the Apostle Paul, like Calvin and Luther, like Knox. who will stand against the seductive works of the flesh that we trust in, the pomp and circumstance, the gold and silver and bronze, the mitres and the capes and the holy days, all those things that seek to cut us off from a simple childlike dependence on the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.